if it's all right with you, I want to set a scene. All right. It's 2013. The greatest TV show of all time is coming to an end. It's Breaking Bad. And on this Sunday night, tons of people, I think it's like the ninth most watched finale of any show of all time, are watching this, this, this scene unfold. And here's the scene. Well, give, let me give you a backstory first. So Walter White is a, begins as a nice family man, and this quickly changes, when he decides to build his own um, medical empire using drugs. And so for five seasons, this, this began as him saying, this is for my wife and children, because he's a high school teacher, there's no money in their savings account. There's, there's no way when he dies, when he, or excuse me, when he is diagnosed with lung cancer, that when he goes, everything's gonna be okay. There's no way. He knows that he's gonna be leaving these people behind, that he loves so much, with nothing. And so he says, okay, I'm gonna use my knowledge of science to do this thing so that my wife and children will be okay, so that they can go to college, so they can pay off the house, pay off the medical bills I'm gonna leave them with, all of these things. For five seasons he's been saying this, but now in this last episode, everything has come crashing down and he's watching this all happen. He's lost his family, he's lost everything, all of the money, everything is gone, his empire is ruined. So there's your backstory. So now, his wife is sitting in a kitchen in a new home that, he, that she got, provided by the DEA, who are all protecting her, and she's sitting in this, in this chair. There's a kitchen window behind her, the sunlight's coming in, she's smoking, and the, the smoke cloud of the sunlight's dark in there, so you just see this weird cloud, and she's sitting there. She gets a call from her sister, and she says, long story short, Walt is in town. You need to know that, like, watch your back. You're, you're protected, I know the DEA's got you, they got me, they got all the family, you're gonna be fine. But just in case, like, please, please, please be careful, because Walt, Walt's in town. She says, all right, all right. And she puts the phone down, and then the camera moves behind the pillar, like this, and Walt is just standing there, just staring at her. And we're all like, oh man, oh, what's going on? And she says, five minutes. It's amazing. Female powers, so good. And Walter White is standing there, he's trying to make up for it, and he says, all the things that I did, I just, I need you to understand. And she, she interrupts him and says, if you say to me one more time that you did it for the family, and then it's him turned to interrupt her. And she, he says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. I was really, I was alive. And all the, I mean, at least me and everyone else I was watching, we, we were like, whoa. Because five seasons of this lie that's been going on the whole time. Now, when everything has come to an end, when all bad things have come to an end, he's left with an honest reflection. He's left with, with, a, with a plea, implicitly asking her, like, here I am now. Now you know what this was all about. Now, Psalm 139 doesn't have any drug lords or, or broken families or DEA agents, none of those things. But I do think that the end of this popular series shares some sentiment of what happens at the end of Psalm 139 that we, could, that we can really learn from. 
Now, Psalm 139, I would call it the second most popular psalm in all of the Bible, right behind Psalm, uh, excuse me, Psalm 23, which Randall discussed last week. And the beauty of it is that it can be so neatly divided into four different sections. The first three sections all focus on God's power and God's greatness. And the first of these sections even dives into one particular aspect of God's greatness, and that is omniscience, uh, or what we would call just all power, or excuse me, all knowing. God can know everything. From verses one to six, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O God, you know it altogether. You set me behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such an knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too high, I can't attain it. What, what is it to be searched and known? I mean, that's really the question that, he's, that they begin with. The psalmist is saying, you've, you've searched me and you know me, and then all of these ways that the psalmist is in fact searched and known. But what is that? I mean, parents spend, what, 18 years or so just analyzing, watching, observing a child grow up into this human, like, is it more like me? Is it more like you? How are they making these decisions? They're, oh, they're really introverted me. Or they're really extroverted, like my dad. And we're, we're seeing how they come up and try to make some judgments like, oh, I know this person. This is, this is my human, and I've watched them for all this time. I, I know them. And spouses probably do that too. I'm not married, so I don't know. But spouses probably do that. You know, you spend years and years and years together and you can make these decisions about like, oh, I know. I know how they're going to react. I'm going to buy them this present. I know what they're going to say when I do it. Or I'm going to propose and I know how they're going to react. I did not. I was, I was wrong when I proposed. And we think we know these things, but often we're, I mean, we may be kind of right. Like she was happy. I'm glad about that, right? Thanks. But it was a little different than what I expected. And so often we, we, we search and know somebody, we think. But do we really get there? Can we really know the words on somebody's lips before they say it? Can we know the path somebody takes before they take it? You can maybe make a prediction about it, but to truly know from beginning to end, this is what they're going to do. No, we can't. We can't really know like that. But the psalmist is saying, you know who does? It's God. Because God can know everything and anything about you before you ever know it. We can't know like God knows, according to the psalmist. Because this knowledge is so beyond us, it's so beyond what we could possibly comprehend or understand. And in the same way that we can't know like God knows, we also can't do what God does or be present like God is present as we see in verses 7 through 12. If I climb to heaven, God, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where could I flee from your presence? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the the farthest parts of the sea, you're there. Your right hand will lead me, and it shall hold me. If I should say, let only darkness cover me, and the light around me be night, even then the darkness is is not dark to you, the night is bright as day for darkness is as light. Now that's pretty insane when you think about it. I mean, let's talk about darkness for a second. You know what, let's turn off all the lights. Let's block that window. Take your phone, just throw it away. 
just break it. Let's go outside, let's go to Times Square where all the power goes out apparently. <laughs> you remember that? And let's try, let's try to experience darkness, but you can't. We can't experience darkness now because we have all of these things. Now maybe if you go to Yosemite or Yellowstone or something, go in the middle where you have no reception, turn off all the lights you have, turn off your flashlight, I guess, your lantern. Maybe you can experience darkness, but still we've had, what, decades of light pollution? Like, we, we physically cannot know darkness like the psalmist would have known darkness in at 1000 BC. And so for that, try to, just try to put yourself in that situation. There is no light. And the psalmist is saying, but that's like, that's like day for God. That, that darkness is light because darkness doesn't exist. God can be present in those extremely difficult places. I mean, if I make my bed in Sheol, yeah, they, they climb, let me climb to heaven. That's easy. Of course God's going to be there. I think we're on board with that idea. But I make my bed in Sheol, and God, you're there. Sheol isn't quite hell, necessarily. There's, there's, there's a little bit of a distinction there. Sheol is the place of... Um, you watched 1993's Hercules when Hades is in the the boat with the ghosts you know they're trying to climb up that's that's really uh the ancient Near East understanding of Sheol it's the place of the undead it's it's where the people who died with some kind of injustice on their hands they died in some kind of unrighteous way um so not like a warrior hero in in a battle or a king or something like that. It's, it's other people. That's where they go. They're, they're the really creepy girl getting her hand up on the boat that Hades just kicks away. And the psalmist is saying, even there, God is there. This is crazy. There's, there's so much to, to focus on splendor with, with, with God's presence. Now, some people have read this and thought about God's all encompassing, never escaping presence as troublesome. As like the, the psalmist is lamenting this fact, like, oh, I want to go somewhere away from your presence, but I can't because you're there. Where could I flee from you? I just, I can't do it. And that might be something that some people think, like, I just want to get away from the God thing. I just want to get out of the, the guy who's watching me in the clouds all the time. But the language here is, your right hand will, will lead me and guide me. And the right hand for this time is a symbol of strength and authority and power. I don't know if that says about me that I'm left-handed, but that's, that's really the, the image is when the right hand is holding you and taking you where you want to go from here to here, you know you're safe that whole time because all of that hand is powerful and it's comforting. There's nothing that can, that can penetrate that. You can't, go where some, you can't go somewhere where God is not. And that seems like an encouraging message here. But why would that be encouraging? Why, why is being with this God such a great thing? And in this next section, we see. We see something about the relationship between God and creation. Verses 13 to, eight, uh, to 18. For you knew my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. You know me well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes held my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of my days. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is some of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in the mother's womb. There's, there's, a, there's an opposite ends of the spectrum thing. Like we had heaven and shield. Now we've, we've got the microscopic view of the womb where God is, is knitting to the vast number of the sands on a beach. And we don't really have beaches here. I mean, Carson Beach maybe or Castle Island. But, but think of a place, an actual beach in California or something. Every single number of grains of sand, that's, that's God's thoughts. I mean, we can't go pick out every single one of those and say, I know how many grains of sand there are. I don't, we can't know how many thoughts God has of us and the ability that God can do to knit us together in the womb and to, again, to know the number of days on our path. And what happens at the end of that? As the psalmist is now reflecting on the fact that God knows everything, God is everywhere, God can do everything, is left with, I imagine, as, as Randall was, was talking about, just lift hands like, I, I got nothing. I'm at the end. Here you are. I'm with you because this is so amazing. And we've had now just three sections of this beautiful description of God's relationship with humanity, all the things that God does and the places God is, the things God does for us and is to us. These moving depictions of God's relationship with us in this beautiful, intricate way. And now in this reflection, we're left with one of the strangest turns in all of literature. Verses 19 to 21. Oh, you would kill the wicked, oh God. And that men of blood would depart from me. Men with malicious, they, they defy you. They lift themselves against you for evil. Do I not hate those that hate you, O God? And do I not loathe them that rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. The hands are raised. God, you're so great. There's nowhere I can go without you. You're, I can't even begin to comprehend your goodness. I'm with you. And then the hands come down like, you know what? Just kill them. Those wicked, don't need them. Take them out, because you're so good. There's, oh, I, I can't imagine, but those, those bad guys, take them out. Just kill them. We don't need them. That's so, that's like if Danny was singing Bethel worship and then just went into killing in the name of by raging against the machine. We'd all get whiplash from like, oh, what's happening? It's, it's the turn of turns. You would think, right, that the, the reflection on God's goodness would lead someone to say, like, now I just want to find that goodness in somebody else. Like, oh, look at my dad. This great, nicest man to ever live, literally. It's crazy. I look at him, I'm like, wow, I see something in that. Or, or my friends from, from my undergrad, I look at them and I'm like, wow. They, like, they got it. They've got some of that goodness. Wouldn't you want to, like, turn it back to that? But the psalmist goes just sharp right and says, nope, nope, just kill the bad guys. We don't need them. There's, there's no room for them in this good world that you've created. There's no room for them in this world that you have known from the depths in the first days for every individual person that you've knit together in the womb. And it, it, it might seem like it makes sense, right? I mean, do I not hate those who hate you? Don't we want to hate the things that are hateable? 
that we're justified to hate? If you were one of the just too many people that went and saw Avengers Endgame, you know, you've got that, that scene when, when Don Cheadle is like, they're talking about going back in time to kill Thanos because Thanos did that and everyone went away pretty much. And Don, they're trying to figure out, those who are left are trying to figure out how do we, how do we fix this. And Don Cheadle is like, well, if we're going to do time travel, why don't we just go back baby Thanos and just... And they're all like, well, that's terrible. But it kind of makes sense. You know, you're, you're trying to be like, yeah, you've got wickedness. Let's take out that wickedness at the source. If we take that out, none of this ever happens. Wickedness goes away, boom. Why not? Why wouldn't that work? But what happens at the end of the psalm? Is it possible that God would just say no to such a request? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now we've got the turn not to the wicked, but to the self. And we might live, let's just say, 3,000 years after the writing of this, but that doesn't really seem so foreign, does it? That kind of turn to self. Don't we have maybe some of those I did it for me kind of moments? Moments when we might say something like, but God, did you not see what that person said on Facebook? But God, did you not see what that person did to me that one night? But God, did you not, did you not just see what I saw of that public figure, of what they said? Did you not hear what they said? But God, they, they made their choices. But God, they, they, they took a, a gun and they, they killed, what, dozens of people in Texas, in Ohio, in an elementary school. Like, but God, do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not hate the bad, the things that are against the good things that you've done? Now, I usually think that these kinds of texts speak for themselves, that we can, we can end it in, in the psalm. But tonight I want to jump ahead about a thousand years. Because around that time, a man came in this world and challenged a system. He challenged xenophobia. He challenged these, these rituals and these religious laws, these state laws. He challenged all these things, all nonviolently. And what he had to do after all of that was carry his death sentence up a hill and die on the top of that hill on a cross. And as he was up there, he did not say, do I not hate those who hate you, O God? But according to the Gospel of Luke, he said, forgive them. So as I bring this all to a close, Psalm 139 is so beautiful and moving because yes, it's got this, look at the greatness of God. Look at the way that God knows me and God is with me and God has made me, has made us. But then it's got this language that as we read it, as we come from that I'm with you to the drop of the hands, take him out, God, just kill him. It may not seem like something we can use in our lives now. Because it's such a dark world at times, because we've seen just within, what, the last two weeks, how dark the shadows of life can really get here in our nation. I'm from Texas, that not far from where I grew up. And that's hard to read. That's hard to feel like I can know 
what that feels like. But on that day, when Jesus was up on that hill, on a cross, the world became, yes, metaphorically dark. The savior of the world is gone. But the gospel says that it became physically dark. That darkness covered the land and a sound was made and the veil was torn. And in that moment, we could know God. Wickedness is terrifying and repulsive and heartbreaking. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. But the psalmist ends by inviting us, by inviting himself, to turn to the God of immense greatness, to search within for that same wickedness that we're trying to get rid of so that they can be led in the everlasting way, so that we can be led in the everlasting way. Do I not hate those who hate you? Doesn't read to a righteous life down the everlasting way. Hate and retribution doesn't lead down the everlasting way. When you go down the everlasting way, what you find is a God who is on a cross. Amen. (laughs) 